Moncrief on News Talk. Now, COP28, as you know, is taking place this week. And while governments wrangle about the fate of the planet, there are also NGOs making their case and others with environmentally friendly products, among them a solar-powered backpack. Caroline O'Doherty is Environment Correspondent with the Irish Independent. Good afternoon, Caroline. Good afternoon. Uh, so, a solar-powered backpack, uh, what does it power and why? Well, the why is that there are children and communities and villages all over Africa, uh, Asia, many other areas that just don't have electricity. So you can imagine a small child who gets to school, uh, come home in the evening, it's dark, and tries to do homework, and there's no light. You know, there's kerosene, there's maybe some bits of generators, there's candles. The child will not necessarily be a priority for sort of stealing the light for, for, for doing homework. And it's not a great way to do your work. Mm. Uh, and this this came to the attention of um, a, a young uh, electronics engineer in, Bo- in Botswana. He had a slightly a slightly more affluent upbringing, but still there were sporadic power cuts. And he uh, he he was aware and conscious of this as a problem. And it came to him like, well, you know, kids are walking to school every day. They're walking home from school today. They're often outdoors during the day. You know, why don't I have a school bag that has a solar panel on it that will be charging up all day? So that when they go home at night, it powers this really powerful LED light, seven hours worth of lighting time, that they can just prop the bike up beside them and work away. Right, it okay. Also has, um, yeah, it also has a, a little charging portal that would do a smartphone, if they have one, um, and it'll do a booster charge on, on a, a, a tablet. Yeah, uh, an ingenious idea, but I suppose even if you're going to give such a thing away at cost, it would might be beyond the reach financially of many families in Africa. Yeah, very much so. Now, he, look, you will see some similar products out there in the really high end, you know, very serious hikers and people who are going to have to do a Bear Grylls, um, um, you know, kind of experience. Um, but they cost thousands. Now, yeah. his, is that his cost uh, about 60, 60 euros, about $65. But yes, that's that's beyond the, the, the reach of many, many families. So he's here talking to NGOs and companies and saying, sponsor these for a village, sponsor these for a community. I'll print your logo on them for you um, and look what you're doing. You're literally giving light to a community and helping the education of kids. You know, he knows it's not the long-term future. He wants to see all those villages with a proper renewable supply of, of, of electricity. But he says, right now, let's not lose another generation. Let's encourage them and let my product do this for them. Yeah. And, and at COP, or on the outskirts of COP, if you like, are there, are there many kind of similar concerns like that uh, who, who have come with, you know, they might there, make a small yeah. difference, but some difference. There, there, yeah. I mean, the COP is, everything about COP is big. And, and the solutions that are out there, there is a kind of a whole area kind of given over to innovations. But, you know, they're very much industry driven. So like, if, you know, China wants to have solar powered cruise ships, for example. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, green hydrogen as fuels for this for industry and, and green ammonia for industry. Um, and it's all big and it's all long term and it all costs loads and loads of money. So sometimes it's really refreshing to see these kind of smaller initiatives you know, that really can make a, a difference kind of right now. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that, 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 there's, there's, a, there's not a huge amount of room for people like this man. His name is Kejimesi Lisi. Um, there's not a huge amount of room at this big, big occasion for people like him. I kind of wish we could see more of him, to be honest. Yeah. So, so does it tend to be, because I was squeezed out, not just by governments, I suppose, but very big businesses? 
Well, they're here in force, so they can afford to be here for a start. And many of them have kind of pavilions, so they literally rent an area section and they'll they'll bring their main customers over. They will uh, present all their findings, all their reports, all their proposals, what they want to do. They'll, they'll network with uh, government ministers and officials and bankers and so on. You know, we, we've had um, every year, for example, fossil fuel industry reps are here. Now, this year, there's been a greater transparency around them because when you registered, you had to answer various questions about who you were and who you were linked to. And so we're not quite sure whether many of them were hiding in plain sight sort of in previous years, but it does seem to be that there's actually a genuine increase in the numbers to about nearly 2,500 of them. It's not just the fossil fuel, the energy people here. here. There's also lots of bankers and there's the steel industry and the cement industry and the big agribusiness. So there's a lot of them around and they, they often go under these kind of slightly um, confusing acronyms and you're not quite sure whether they're a campaign group uh, trying to get rid of the particular industry or get rid of the bad habits in that particular industry or whether they are the industry. So, yeah, there's, there's that going on as well. Yeah. And and do you get the sense, um, I mean, you know, it, it was, it's been widely reported uh, the, the comments of Ahmad Al-Jabbar and, and you know, the, a bit of a rant he had at Mary Robinson. Uh, is there a kind of a sense of why we in why are we in an oil producing company to talk about this? Yeah, I mean, from the very start, like it's a rotating um, the host the hosting of of a COP is a rotating thing every year. It goes to a different region, and he was appointed. They UAE was appointed in January, and there was a collective gasp inside um, of why why do we have the head of an oil company um, as going to be what the title is president of COP. Um, um, you know, and a lot of organizations that were kind of outraged at the time then sort of adjusted their thinking and said, OK, look, if we actually make any any inroads into the fossil fuel industry here, maybe he's the man to do it. Maybe if he makes a leap forward, um, you know, the, the fossil fuel industry will follow him. Unfortunately, it seems to have taken a leap backwards when he made those comments, um, you know, in, in this online discussion with Mary Robinson, because it seemed to reveal sort of the real uh, jabber, which is not necessarily a man or a company that is really keen to get rid of itself, to get rid of fossil fuels, but it's quite like to keep going and find ways to kind of miraculously get rid of the carbon emissions that come from them, which is also a big talking point here. You know, the role of carbon capture technology. It doesn't really exist as it's envisaged by some of these fossil fuel companies yet, but they're really keen that, you know, to present it as, as a possible solution so that they can keep going. Okay, so it, 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 that sounds a bit like there's a, there's almost two competing narratives. One is that, you know, we have to reduce Carbon emissions, which inevitably means reducing fossil fuels and getting rid of them altogether eventually, but others saying, oh, no, there's a technical fix to all this. We don't have to do that. Well, that first statement that you said, that reduce emissions, it inevitably means uh, reducing fossil fuels. That's the sticking point, because we've always presumed that if we can get all the fossil even get countries behind the idea of reducing fossil fuels, yes, of course, that automatically means reducing fossil fuels. They're kind of saying, no. Uh, we can reduce fossil fuels, but we don't have to eliminate them completely because we'll be able to use these technologies unproven, unyet un developed, if you like, the scale that would be needed would um, allow us to continue using them. Um, and that's just quite a bit of dismay among not only the campaigners and the NGOs and the environmental activists, but also the scientists and many engineers um, who are maybe not involved in industry who are looking on at this and saying, no, that, that won't work as a solution. It has to be fossil fuels out. Mm. It's because it seems as if every, every when there's ever a cop, um, there are a certain amount of hopes going into it, 
And it seems invariably those hopes are dashed. Um, as someone said today, at every cop, there's a little bit of progress, but certainly not what, you know, people go into it hoping for. Most people go into it hoping for. You know, what what likely is likely to happen this year, well, potentially likely to happen, is that two years ago, there was a decision for the very first time to put in some um, um, clause around fossil fuels into the, what would be the text of the final agreement that will emerge at the end of all this, that they all, all countries have to agree on. Now, it was a very watered-down uh, you know, um, phrase. It said that uh, the countries would all agree to the um, the phase down, not phase out, so um, of unabated coal. So, A, it's it settled on one kind of fossil fuel, just coal, not oil and gas. Um, it said phase down and not phase out, and it said unabated. So, that means, unabated means not having some sort of technology that would remove it. So, it, it was a very limited, it was considered a kind of a, a limited success because it got some focus on fossil fuels, which sounds remarkable after 30 years of COPs that we still haven't got somewhere in the agreement a focus on reducing and ultimately phasing out fossil fuels. So they've gone in with a higher ambition this year, at least most parties have, um, that could we look at actually putting in the text a phase out. Um, but it's a, that's going to be a real sticking point, and it already is a sticking point. We're halfway through now, um, and we had a, a, we had a, a, a sort of a rallying cry there from the, the UN's climate chief, um, a couple of hours ago there where he expressed the opinion that, you know, people were posturing and uh, and it's going too slowly. And, you know, he said that you know, it's all proposals that have been put forward from the countries who really want a lot of action and countries who don't. He said it basically resembled a grab bag of wishes. So what he was saying to them is, you know, focus on the real, the realistic um, proposals here because he can't be doing with this, you know, halfway through the, the summer. Mm. Yeah, I was actually I was on Channel Four News last night to, to coincide with this. They had a piece about uh, Tuvalu, where you know one of the Pacific Islands, where literally where they're talking about relocating everybody to another place because everyone's except at this point it's too late to to rescue that particular island. Small places like that, even small places like Ireland. Do they have much of an impact there, or is it really about the oil producers and you know big the the big Western industrial or and China of course and and Russia, but the big industrialized countries? They do have an impact because they all join together. All the negotiations happen in blocks. So obviously, we're part of the EU, but then the EU is part of other sort of blocks and alliances. And the, the what they call the SIDs, the small island developing nations, the small island developing countries. When they gather together, there's actually so many more of them than you'd imagine, you know, and they are very vocal um, and they have friends in the likes of particularly Ireland, actually, and, and the EU. Um, and they were really um, they were really strong in getting um, the, the one success we've had of this COP so far is what's called the Loss and Damage Fund. It was agreed in principle last year. Um, but it didn't have, they, they set up a committee then to say, well, how would it work and how would we get money into it and who would run it and so on. It was agreed this year it would be set up um, on a temporary basis, but within a corner of the World Bank as a secretariat. But that meant that countries could start pledging money to it. So it's already gathered over 700 million euros. Um, and that is to compensate for exactly what you've described there. When when climate, has, climate change has caused so much damage, um, or sea level rise has rose to such a level that literally people can't 
live in their land anymore. So they've lost completely. You know, they're, they're, it's irrevocably gone. So, you know, rich countries have been very good at kind of handing over money to countries for what they call climate adaptation. So, look, we, we'll help you build a seawall defence or we'll, um, we'll help you um, convert your, uh, protect your agriculture or, we, we, you know, some way of adapting to the changing climate. Rich countries have never wanted to provide for loss and damage because it was kind of sounded too similar to, like, compensation or making reparations. So almost had that kind of court-like feel to it when somebody comes in with a compensation claim. Mm. So it was a really big deal to get it uh, agreed in principle last year and to have it now functioning and to have countries pledging money to it this year, is, is you know, that's been the one success so far. And that largely came from the, the, just the strength and push of, um, of small island developing nations and also sub-Saharan African nations, you know, because they're the ones dealing with not, not land loss, but certain, not land loss through uh, sea level rise, but through a, a just perpetual drought, which just means the land is no longer functioning for agriculture, and also um, some uh, just hitting by the perpetual, you know, repeat cyclones that weren't familiar before. They would have had them maybe once in ten years, and now maybe they can get one every year. And you can't keep rebuilding after that. Mm. You can't keep replenishing the, the soil or the land or the homes or whatever. You move away. It's 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 lost. It's gone forever. So that's the kind of thing. And it was their voices, small as they are, they're not powerful, they're not fossil fuel producing countries. Um, but then they bind together, suddenly you have an awful lot of countries all saying the same thing. It's hard to ignore them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you can see how that might be a, 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 a small hopeful sign. But I suppose from the the rich countries' point of view, chucking a few bob towards the countries that are getting directly impacted by this is far cheaper than actually giving up oil production or oil usage, which is going to cost them billions. Well, that's true, because the United Arab Emirates, you know, again, got a, a lot of praise for a few minutes until everybody kind of realised that point, because they, they put um, uh, 30, mm, 30 billion towards a fund for, uh, how do they describe it, kind of an accelerator fund. Um, so they would, it would, it would kickstart sort of renewable energies and other kind of uh, green development in countries. And the idea is that that would help unlock private finance uh, because oftentimes pri- big private investors, they know oil, they know gas, they know it's reliable, they know that there's a market for it. So that's what they keep investing in, trying to get them to move to something different. They kind of, they're a bit risk averse. But when they see like there's a fund and, and a country like the UAE putting money into it, they're more likely to get involved in whatever the project is. And it sounded enormous and there was lots of praise. And then it went, oh, well, actually, what's, what's 30 billion to the UAE? It's mm-hmm. not really that much, is it? Yeah. Is everybody there? Are there are, are there countries that don't go? Uh, pretty much everybody is here. You know, some of the negotiating teams would be very small, you know, um, and not everybody can send their leader, you know, the prime minister. Uh, they would send maybe an envoy. Um, uh, Russia, obviously, um, there was some talk that Putin might turn up, actually, because he's next door. He's in Saudi. Um, but it, it seems there were helicopters earlier and everybody looked up, but it wasn't him. Um, you know, China traditionally doesn't send its leader, but it does send its climate climate envoy who's very experienced. Uh, Joe Biden didn't come this year, um, which I think let people down a bit. Obviously, he's very busy with other rights, but, but he, given that he is a climate champion, that's not always played out in actually his domestic policies because he's also issuing new oil and gas licenses. But he has done a, he has put a lot of money into climate innovation and, you know, he does... And he did sign up to the loss and damage fund in the end, even though the Americans haven't wanted it for many years. So he's not here. Mm. 
So, yeah, there's some big names that it would have been maybe good to see. Um, but, you know, I say Europe is quite powerful because, you know, it may we may not be known for our oil and gas, um, but we're a big block, you know. So it, it's when you kind of look at the groupings, you, you start to see where the power balances are, you know. Um, obviously, you know, India, China, they, you know, Brazil is here, um, and unfortunately they're also expanding oil and gas, even while their very popular president is saving the Amazon, reverse, trying to reverse some of the dreadful damage done to the Amazon in recent times. So, you know, there are, there are kind of big names, um, big personalities here, and, you know, they can move things on in different ways, and, you know, but, but also you, you do find a kind of there's two tracks in, in, in within some countries that they're, they're kind of agreeing with this part and not agreeing with that part. So it's an interesting mix. Yeah. Caroline, thanks a million. Uh, Nice to talk to you again. That was Caroline O'Doherty there, environmental correspondent uh, with the Irish Independent, uh, who was in, obviously, uh, UOA for the uh, COP. Someone says, I'm so pro-saving the environment, but these cops are a waste of time and money. If they really cared, they would do these online. Well, I suppose in international diplomacy, there seems to be a... Uh, there still seems to be a firm belief that doing things face to face, perhaps having conversations behind closed doors face to face can be more productive uh, than, you know, having a Zoom meeting. Uh, uh, someone else says, uh, you telling me the most powerful people in the world flying to UAE on private jets is the best way to save the planet. Please, Johnny, uh, you should have put please comma uh, 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 or even please full stop uh, after that, Johnny. But we uh, get your sentiment. And uh, Carl says, because uh, Carl's done his research. Yes, he has. Uh, uh, don't mind what every country in the world thinks, but every, uh, uh, what the, the, the broad consensus of the scientific community uh, thinks. Carl says, are you going to question her uh, raising sea levels nonsense? Climate change is a cult. Yes, Carl, you know better. Good thing you know, and the rest of us uh, the many billions who don't think that are, are so deluded. Uh, Sean, COP, a COP is just virtue signalling of the highest degree. We can't even introduce agri-limits here. Well, again, it's that old thing that, you know, progress, it gets, it, it comes very, very slowly in this regard and, and things change, unfortunately, very, very slowly in this regard. Someone else says, Eamon Ryan told us, uh, all to take less flights for environmental reasons. This year alone, he has spent a huge amount of time abroad. If he cares about the environment like he says he does, he should reconsider these trips and only travel abroad when really needed. Well, I suppose he's not here to defend himself. I think he's still there. He, he'd, uh, uh, I, I imagine he'd argue that he is really needed to be there because of that idea that uh, it's uh, you make more progress if you have face-to-face meetings uh, with people rather than uh, doing it from a distance. Moncrief, weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.